And today's scripture comes from the book of Isaiah. It's chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along in your bulletin. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central. I bring you greetings from that great city called Brooklyn. In New York City, is Brooklyn in the house? I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) I finally got my chance. It's great. Well, if Brooklyn's not in the house, the Lord is. Amen. That's all right. We are, uh, my family and I are looking forward to um, being a part of our first family. Uh, when I first started in ministry, we were looking forward to being back here. And uh, my wife is not here because our third child is due on May 7th. And uh, so she is very pregnant right now and was not looking forward to getting on a plane. So she is home with the kids and uh, they're enjoying Palm Sunday uh, with um, uh, our current church family back in Brooklyn. But uh, our kids are looking forward to coming down here. And uh, my daughter says, like, oh, you know, she's thinking about her friends and, you know, saying goodbye to some of them. But she's like, I get my own room? Yeah. So <laughs> she can't wait. <laughs> Two other boys to be boss over, and she gets her own room. It's a pretty sweet deal. So she's going to be full of thanksgiving to this congregation. Um, before we get started, uh, please allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I just wanted to thank you for allowing us to gather in your presence this morning, for allowing us to hear from you, to receive a word of grace that would transform our lives and make us into a blessing to this world. And Lord God, we remember even now our brothers and sisters, some who have lost their very lives in Egypt because of their worship of you. We pray for those families whose lives have just been wrecked because of this tragedy. And we ask, oh God, that you would protect them, that you would give them the strength that they need to keep going, to persevere, to keep holding on to the Christ who holds on to them. God, we thank you and ask that even as we meditate on this, that you remind us of how you hold on to us, that you would allow us to persevere and to examine the challenges that we face in our own lives and count them Um, nothing, count them as nothing, as long as we get to share in the power of your resurrection and the glory of your sufferings, that we would be one with you. We thank you, O God, and ask that you uh, would continue to speak to us as you already have through your word, speak to us through the preached word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So it is Palm Sunday, as you've already heard. And Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week, those seven days in which we spend time uh, rehearsing, commemorating, as it were, the son of the life, the days that the Son of God used to give his life so that the world may have new life. But just how useful is this season to our neighbors? How useful is it to ourselves, the church? The sermon after sermon has been preached about how the true meaning of the season has been replaced by chocolate bunnies and spring cleaning products, right? But before we get our signs and start protesting against bunnies that sound like chickens, let's, let's consider this season because this, this springtime season is a time in which we should be filled with whimsy and with freshness. But we've just come out of another season that was filled with long, dark nights and some cold temperatures and flowers were dead and they were not blooming. And so now here we are in a season in which warmth has returned. There are verdant fields, and we even smell the early signs of ribs on the grill. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I think this season is more than, more than, more than uh, uh, January 1st is actually the beginning of the new year. It's the new beginning for many of us. The smell and the signs of new life are upon us. And Holy Week is supposed to set us up for reimagining and pursuing a new way of living in God's good, good world, God's good creation. It's a season of the renewal of life. But instead, during this time, we can also be filled with anxiety over our debt, over those performance reviews that are coming, over college applications, and our ability or lack of ability to go on vacation. And some of you have had really hard winters. Already in these past few months, you've had to have difficult conversations with friends and relatives about what it means to be an American or more importantly, what it means to be a human being. And there's been a war of competing interests and visions that has so misshaped our country that many don't even recognize this nation anymore. And some don't even recognize their loved ones anymore. Yet as the wisest commentators in our culture have noticed, the division across political and ethnic and class and gender lines that we're currently experiencing is a division that has been underneath the surface for a long time. The divides of people who are desperately seeking the good life run deep. And if we're to experience any renewal in our country, we need a hope whose healing can run just as deep. Like Star Wars, we need a new hope, a rebel force, if you will, positioned against self-interest and oppression and the violent hand of hubris. The appearing, the coming, the renewal of a radically new way of being human. We need the renewal of the Easter season to open the door to self-indulgent and fearful people like you and me to experience the vision and the power of a hope that we could not generate for ourselves, but it can only be received as a gift that reconstitutes us into a united people driven towards sacrifice and joy and abundant love. Who will show us the way? God will, and God does. Now, a lesson this morning came from the prophet Isaiah. And he was a privileged man who lived in Jerusalem during a time of political uncertainty. His ethnic neighbors in the high country up north were already under the oppression of Assyria. They had been conquered. And so some social anxiety was palpable 
among the populace. From the, popu from the politicians down to the bakers, everyone was scrambling for anything that would give them some sense of security. So they had become divided, seeking hope through violence, deceit, <coughs> neglect, and superficial religion. And Isaiah is sitting here in the halls of power, watching his country and his city slowly crumble before his eyes, his eyes helpless to do anything until God gives him a vision. God gives him this vision of a new Jerusalem, the city of God, that if embraced could bring new hope to the current Jerusalem. So we have evidence of God fulfilling this very need for a new hope, but he alone opens the door to it, and yet we still must act. We still must take responsibility as God opens the door to this new hope. We must step forward and participate with God's actions as creatures who've been given free moral agency because our will actually matters to God. I'm gonna make an appeal to you from our lesson this morning that we take two steps, even if we're just investigating things during this pre-Easter season. I wanna invite you to refocus and to repent. The two steps, to refocus and to repent. From ancient times, God has held forth the promise to those who love him. That is the promise of a new country, recast here as a new Jerusalem, where he would dwell with his people and forever be their God and be their king. And that promise was sometimes given through a prophetic vision, as we have before us. And as that vision became a commitment for those who believed, it began to reorder their heart's desires. And it also reordered their lives, both individually and socially. And now, if we would experience a level of God's personal and social reformation in our time, we too must refocus on this vision. For Isaiah calls us to climb the mountain, so to speak, to come on up a little bit higher and see what he sees. Now, what does he see? What is this? Now, let's be clear that what Isaiah shares with his people and with us is only a glimpse of the future. It's a glimpse because God's future for and with this world that he loves so much is more than what is contained in these verses. These verses are just a piece of what God has in store for those that he loves. But it's a glimpse of the future because none of what is spelled out in this text has ever been fulfilled or will be for now. So the vision that is received by a prophet today is pretty lofty. I mean, in verse 2, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the hill of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the heavens and shall be lifted above all the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, it was believed in ancient times that gods dwelled on mountains. Now, if you think about Zeus on Mount Olympus or perhaps the, the mountain cultists of like Incan civilization, that sort of thing, then you get the idea. So if the God of Jacob, who is also served by his grandfather Abraham, establishes his house as the highest of all the mountains, then we're talking about one world with one religion. That is the picture that he's giving here, a multinational devotion to God who once identified himself with a strange group of nomads who were oppressed for almost 16 generations. 
Could we actually live in a world where all nations entrust themselves to a God who self-identifies with the weak and the powerless? Then the third verse envisions many nations coming to God to find out how best to organize their social and political and, yes, their private lives. But there's even more. Isaiah also sees a world where nations and people groups no longer settle disputes with war or violence. The value of a people is no longer secured by ripping apart the bodies of our young people with IEDs and bombs and bullets. But the dignity and the welfare of a nation will no longer depend on covert intelligence and lies and lying in bed with leaders who violate human rights. But God himself will arbitrate justice, always bringing about what is fair, always bringing about what is right for all people. Now, there's a danger here as we think about this. What do I mean by that? I need to point out this, that before you can climb a mountain, you have to plan ahead for a potential peril, right? So there's a danger here. We need to look at this. Notice that the nations are not devoted to a religious ideology, but they're devoted to a personal being. That's important. They're not devoted to a religious ideology, but to a personal being. The biblical faith is not a set of morals that we're supposed to apply to our lives. There are definitely moral prescriptions in the Bible, that's, that's for sure. But do you see how these nations, even in a future age to come, where there's no sin, must still dialogue with God about the gross national product and the distribution of wealth? Right? It's, it's because we're not meant to gain knowledge whether it's moral or otherwise, and then run off at the mouth as if we have it all figured out. We're not supposed to live that way. Even pro sports teams have a coaching staff. Even great actors need a director, right? In the same way, individuals and nations that are dedicated to the craft of being human need a vital relationship with the living Lord. Now, why do I harp on this? Because some of you have been intimidated or controlled by a religious group who claim to have it all figured out. Some of you have witnessed real harm caused by people in the name of universal truth, right? The beauty of God's word is that it contains a larger story that is sufficient to shape our lives through all of life, but Christians in particular commit a great offense when they claim to have mastered that story and then proceed to tell others that faithfulness means wearing a certain kind of deodorant, right? Or, or a certain kind of dancing, this kind of political camp, or that kind of culture. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So Isaiah shows us a future where various people groups enter into a time of discernment with the Lord when faced with conflicting views. They seek his counsel and they learn how to listen. We're talking about a global culture of humility that flows from the universal reign of God. Now, what some people do in the name of religion is not humility. Christians should not be quick to apply biblical formulas to personalities and preferences or policies that they know nothing about, as if they mastered the whole world. How do we know that our way of serving the poor in a particular context is the right way? How do we know how all wealthy people should spend their money in our current economy? How do we know the way gender roles should go down in somebody's home? See, truth is not to be controlled, but consulted. 
is to be consulted. But if we're all caught up in the busyness that marks this coming season, if we're struggling deep down with an anxiety about pleasing ourselves with this world or appeasing someone else with our gifts, then we'll have no time or patience for being attentive to the Lord through prayer and community. We'll be tempted to use what we know and dominate others to gain peace on earth. If we're not careful, regardless of how progressive or traditional we may be, we'll become self-righteous consumers who care more about our ideas and our comfort than about real people. We must learn how to consult the Lord in the midst of different cultural contexts and changing times because the future of God's people will be far from a monocultural experience. It will be multinational, a multinational reality, one in which no people group will claim cultural superiority over the other. But all, all will bow the knee to God and flourish under his rule. And because of God's commitment to the welfare of the nations, there will be real life, true life. No more taking of life, only its cultivation. For God says in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, you see this image of gardening tools that's in this text, right? The gardening tools mentioned here harken back to the image of Adam and Eve in the garden before everything went wrong. There they were in this perfect relationship with our creator, learning how to bring forth the abundance of this world in his honor. And Isaiah sees a future beyond our horizon where the ways of that garden could become the ways of the entire world, except in that day, many nations will participate in that life and not just one couple. So Isaiah calls us up just a little bit higher and helps us to refocus our lives on what is to come, what is described here as the new Jerusalem. If there's any word that could be used to describe the hope of this pre-Easter season and Easter itself, it's abundance. God desires to share his future in this world with a countless multitude of people, people that we cannot even number. And he's made a way for us to share in his abundance right now. But as I said, we must take action. And the action that God requires, at least at first and always, is repentance. That we must refocus on God's vision of the glorious future that he has in store for those who love him. But then we must also repent. Okay, here we go again with a term that is often synonymous with oppressive religious groups, right? When we hear repent, some of us shudder. But this is a good word from the scriptures that I think the church must not let get co-opted by domineering forces in our day. For repent simply means to turn around. So in other words, like if, you're, if you want a good croissant and you're on your way to uptown, and then you're like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> where do I get a croissant? You need to turn around and go to Amelie's, right? It's in the other direction, right? It's, that's a good thing, right? So following my analogy, uh, you know, repentance also implies an internal change as well. It's a conversion of sorts. One would have to sense that Amelie's baked goods were of a higher quality than what you could find in Uptown, right? Or at least imagine so. 
And then you would actually have to care about that difference. The future kingdom that God has in store, this new socio-political reality that he is offering may not seem imaginable to some. And maybe that's you. Maybe you hear new Jerusalem, new creation, and these things sound like some kind of nighttime story that's great for children when they, get, when they feel like the world is harsh. Right? Oh, let's just tell them about this future and make them feel better. Or maybe you've heard about the kingdom of God, and it sounds somewhat decent to you, but you're, you're pretty much fine with your plan A. I don't really need that. Either way, turning around from the direction that you're heading down toward God's kingdom doesn't feel likely. But I want you to know, first of all, that this is a community. Having been a part of this church, I know this for a fact that this is a community where you will not be coerced into belief. You are free to call Christ Central your community for as long as you like and try on Christianity for as long as you want to. Because we know that you have to experience a conversion before repentance to gain a deep sense that God's promise is better than anything that this world can guarantee. Jesus talked about what happens after you get this sense when he said, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, okay, so allow me just a couple of minutes here just to persuade both um, those who would call themselves faithful and those who would say, uh, I think I'm a little bit more secular than everyone else here. But Jesus argues that the kingdom of God is so good that when someone gets a sense of it, that she should throw away her blueprints for a better future to take hold of his kingdom. Now, our contemporary plans for a life giving kingdom have sort of a, a modern flair and a late modern flair to it, right? That late modern, some people call it postmodern. They have, you know, two different kinds of flair to this thing. Now, the, the modern one typically says that you and I are best understood as consumers, as rational beings that need free enterprise to naturally lead our world to the most rational and efficient allocation of goods and services. In other words, let the market rule, right? That's that's the narrative, okay? But as critics of this hope have shown, the Joneses are the ones who tend to have true consumer power. And they don't allow any difference from their preferences or their point of view without accusing others of being in irrational or antisocial. Now, if you're curious about how this works, just follow a teenager to school and walk in their shoes for a day, and you'll see exactly how this works. They experience these pressures every single day. Now, the late modern flair of our plan for peace and happiness and a good future says that the problem with the modern version is that it forces a certain standard on all cultures, and that's not fair. You shouldn't do that, right? It, it uses, quote, unquote, truth as a form of control. So then the, the way forward then for us, it declares, is, is to recognize a whole host of private and social standards we're not trying to bring them together into some kind of cohesive whole. But the problem is, if there's no true truth, if there's nothing absolute, 
then we have no basis to tell the strong that they should not oppress the weak. We have no basis to resist the narrative that we should all fulfill ourselves through consumer lifestyle choices and let the chips fall where they may. Our culture's blueprints don't really offer what we long for or even what they've promised. So Isaiah speaks to us, and he says, turn around and come to the mountain of the Lord. Come on up a little bit higher. Consider the faith in the Lord that he offers to us, which makes sense of human rights, which truly motivates people to live by them with consistency and has the power to deliver on his promises. And when you begin to desire his kingdom and turn around and let him bring you in, you see that God, everything that God has promised is real and will come true. Okay, but let me talk to those who self-identify as Christians this morning. The faithful. Because what are God's people to do while they wait for the new Jerusalem? See, Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And this is a call to be renewed, to be renewed in our obedience to God in light of what's coming. And if we're not sure where to start, we need look no further than the very first chapter of Isaiah. Because if you would look there, what you'll see is this whole litany of specific sins that the people of God have committed against God and against each other. And it includes things like a corrupt judicial system with a terrible defense for the poor and the disenfranchised. Political leaders who love dishonest people and many other kinds of social abuses. And God's promise of a new Jerusalem to Isaiah's current Jerusalem was an act of grace because she deserved to be punished for her unfaithfulness. She was supposed to be the city of God that represented peace. I mean, it's called Jerusalem, for goodness sake. The city of peace. It's supposed to be the place where sacrificial living and justice were lived out every single day, and you could feel it and touch it and sense it all around you. But in her failure, she was given hope instead of condemnation, like you and I need. What could account for that but grace? Immeasurable and undeserved grace. And this is what we can expect as we repent of our social abuses, as we walk in the light of the Lord, for how many times must we hear the cry of marginalized people being overlooked in the church? How many times must we hear the cry of young boys, wives, and girlfriends who are victimized by abuse while church authorities look the other way? How many times must we hear the cry of genuine believers who have to check their cultures at the door because the market for multi-ethnic churches is greater among the urban dominant culture? God's people have some serious repenting to do. And I've only scratched the surface of our collective mess. I haven't even gotten into the individual stuff, right? We must refocus and repent. If we are to become a people changed by the hope of Easter, the expectation of renewal through the suffering and the victory of Jesus Christ. But still, Isaiah bids us to come on up a little bit higher to keep pressing toward that great vision that God has laid out for those who love him, we become content with cultural superiority. Come on up. We become content 
with ignoring the real needs of the oppressed and the disenfranchised. Come on up. We become content with doing great things for God without actually listening to God. Come on up. We become content with only certain groups that fit our tastes being included in the kingdom. Come on up. Now we know that the rivers cannot flow up mountains as it says here in this text. And, we, and, and these nations represent these rivers. They are coming up to the mountain of the Lord. What does this tell us? That the new Jerusalem is not a product of human achievement, but it comes through the power and presence of God. And so it is for all those who seek to walk and to live in his light. We must rely on the power of God. For we, like the old Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, will fail. And God will come upon us with a divine critique. But thank God for the hope of Holy Week. The Son of God came into the world as one of us and identified himself with the weak and the powerless, even though he shared equality with God. He was betrayed by many who wanted this market-ready Savior. He was unjustly condemned to a brutal death by a corrupt court system and abandoned not only by those who said that they loved him, but also by his own father. Come on up a little bit higher to Calvary's Hill and see the only man who ever practiced God's laws perfectly. Come on up a little bit higher to the mountain of the Lord crucified and see someone who was demolished that sinners may be reconstructed into a new humanity. He is the one who will renew us. Our king, who turns his enemies into his friends and competing people groups into a family. He is the one who gives us new life. A king who sends his spirit to all who believe in him so that we might live in light of his future glory. Hosanna in the highest. In Christ and in him alone, we press forward in hope. Let us prepare ourselves for that future hope, that new hope. For God's coming kingdom, knowing that the power of Christ is working within us and his power alone is sufficient to get us there. Welcome to Holy Week. Let us pray. Come, thou almighty king. Consecrate our broken lives. Fill us with your spirit. Make us into your people who are signposts of the new creation. Change us, O oh God, as you cleanse us of our sins and help us to refocus on the vision that you have given to us for the world that you love so much that you gave your only begotten son. We pray that you would change us too. Oh God, you love us more than we could ever imagine, more than we could deserve. Help us now to do what you have called us to do, relying upon you, upon your grace. We can be agents of blessing to this world around us until your son returns and brings us a new world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.